Our scripture text this morning is Genesis 23, verses 1 through 20. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Mount Pilar, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ability to sing with the saints. Thank you for the foretaste of heaven where there will be no more weeping and death and grief. Thank you, Lord. There our joy will be fulfilled and continually unfolding. Help us to get a a glimpse of that even right now. Bless the preaching of your word. May it land on soft hearts. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. There was a study done of the most commonly sung Christian hymns in the United States between 2000 and 2015 contrasted with uh, uh, 1737 and 1960. While there were similarities across the board, there was one stark difference as far as the topic of popular Christian songs. 
and that was the topic of heaven. In 2000 and 2015, as the man who did the study said, the heaven in many ways, in many songs, just kind of dropped off the page. Some of the reasons for the shift, uh, as, as he cites, are strands of theology, which emphasize this higher life, this kind of victorious living, um, a pseudo-prosperity gospel, if you will. Um, other reasons were that uh, there's an emphasis in singing of catering to younger people for economic reasons. Younger people generally buy more music. They have less life experience. They have less hardship. And therefore, they probably are longing for heaven a little bit less than the typical older saint. They generally think about death and heaven less because they've generally lost less. One anecdote is John Newton's well-known hymn. You all know it. Faith's Expectation and Review, commonly known as Amazing Grace. I just found that out. Um, Chris Tomlin took that song and, and altered it a little bit, which there's nothing wrong with that. But the one verse he decided to take out was this verse. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And he substituted that with, again, a very doctrinally sound verse. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. Whatever the reason is, whether it was, you know, Christian radio stations, he himself, whatever it was, that's the one verse they decided to substitute with this verse of, of Lord has ransomed me. I can be free and happy or confident in this life. Uh, so what does all this have to do with Genesis 23? Genesis 23 teaches us that God will bring us home. God will bring us home. Uh, my sermon has three points. If you're a note taker, here they are. Point one, we're not home yet. Point two, God's our only hope of getting home. And thirdly, we will surely certainly, without a doubt, get home. Um, a little, just to, to catch us all up to speed, uh, there's been no mention of any land promise since Genesis 17, verse 8. There's tension in the greater narrative of the Pentateuch and in Genesis that God still has yet to provide a land for his people. So the question is, for the reader, is God faithful? Can God really be trusted? Is he one to follow through on what he's promised? That's the question that the author is setting up for us. The question for us is, have we become too comfortable here? For the Christian, have you become too comfortable here? Are you longing as you should for your eternal home. If you are not yet a Christian and you happen to be here this morning, so glad you're here. Uh, I'm going to ask you some more distinct questions. Do you long for something better than this world? Are you yearning for a better home? Something that's greater than this world? Something 
that's more joyful, that's more restful, something that's more secure than this earth. Let me pose to you what C.S. Lewis wrote. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If you're not yet a Christian, let me just let that land on you and you think about that as we go through this sermon. So point one, this is not our home. Look at verses one to two. Verses one to two set the scene. The tension is set up. Sarah, Abraham's wife, the woman who carried the promised blessing, she dies. All the years of her life, her 127 years. Now, this isn't recorded to only tell us that she died, but also to tell us where she died. You see all the, the, the big words in this text that are hard to pronounce? Melanie just went for it and did a good job. She died in Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron. And just in case that doesn't make any sense to you, the author is being very clear, this is in the land of Canaan. Uh, back in chapter 12, God called Abraham whose name was Abraham at the time, out of his homeland and called him to sojourn to the land that he will show him, which is the land of Canaan. That's where the Canaanites dwell. That's why it's called the land of Canaan. And then if you, and, and feel free to look back in your Bible or just listen to me. Chapter 12, verse seven, God says to your offspring, I will give this land. And he sets up, Abraham, a tent in the land. But it's clear because he's setting up a tent in the land. He's not setting up a permanent dwelling place. This place is not his. He's sojourning in this land. And as the chapters unfold, the Lord continues to bring up the promised land of Canaan. And each time he does it, he's adding more and more clarity to what's going on with this promised land and how God's gonna fulfill this promise. So in chapter 15, verse seven, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of, Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And since in that portion, Abraham's kind of looking at the land or he's on the land. And he's just saying like, this is the land I'm going to give you, but it's clear it's not yours yet. And then as we move through Genesis in chapter 15, uh, the Lord says, he's making it more and more clear on that day, the Lord made a covenant. Okay. So God's already said it. God's not a liar. Everything God says is going to happen, but sometimes God says something and he takes a big highlighter and he highlights it. This is what God does here. In 15, 18 to 21, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So we're getting really specific. This piece of land will be yours. And I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And then in 1778, the highlighter's already out. It's as if God is circling it now with a red marker, highlighted, said by God. And in 1778, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. This is a covenant 
God says he's going to give this land and he's going to give it to the descendants of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham forever. After that, we have this tension in Genesis of the offspring. Okay, well, we've heard about a land. We've heard about descendants. Sarah and Abraham are very old. They have no children uh, between the two of them. And then that tension is resolved by the birth of Isaac. Sarah miraculously at a very old age gives birth to a son. So that tension's resolved, but now we have this tension of the land. How is God going to provide land for his people? Verse two, look at that. And Sarah died of chapter 23. And Sarah died in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is not yet, the, the promised land has not been fulfilled because Sarah dies. If you familiar with the scriptures back in Genesis 3, death is the intruder into this whole story. It's a consequence of sin. And then we get this kind of hum, human side of Abraham. So we get the biblical theology, right? We're tracking there. But look what the narrator does. This, this, is, this is painful stuff. He mourned for her and he wept for her. It's not the main point of the chapter, but it serves to, to set up the tension to show that this intrusion, that death is, is still there. It's brought into God's world. And guess what? It's going to be in the promised land too. It's most important to see and trace the promise of God here the promise of descendants and the promise of land, but laced throughout Genesis are snapshots of human experiences. And here we have the common, all too common experience of grief. Abraham wept for his dead wife. It's a common experience to all of mankind because if you live more than 20, 30 years, you'll probably grieve someone you love. Uh, yesterday, I was at the seniors breakfast, the, the not the 12th graders, the older seniors. And uh, I sit on the table and I was struck by how many people in our church have already lost a spouse that they love. And our brother John here, he, he, he lost his wife 10, 11 months ago. Get him testified to God's goodness even through it. And while those in Christ have great hope that we will one day feast with the king and also with those we love, death does sting. It hurts. Now, I'm only 39, but I can tell my 30s were very different than my 20s. I go to more funerals than I do weddings. Just this past few months, our family has uh, uh, heard about the news of two dear saints from our past church, Warnell Road, that died within a few weeks of each other. Uh, Emory in Brooklyn's uh, sixth grade teacher died of a very quick cancer this past week. My fourth grade Lachlan, his teacher's husband, quickly died of a stroke. One of our neighbors died. This is just in a few months. It's just so much. Just come. Waves of grief just come, especially as you get older. And, and it tells us one thing. We all can say amen, that death is an intruder and death is hard. Well, scriptures teach us that the penalty of sin is death. 
In the beginning of Genesis, there's a sobering phrase repeated after Genesis 3. All is well in the garden. Adam and Eve give in to the temptation of Satan. And then death enters the world. They're kicked out of the land. And now they're sojourning out of the garden. And there's this phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. They lived a long time back then, but they all died. And death reminds us that this is not how it's supposed to be. Jesus himself, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he wept when Lazarus died, even though he knew he was going to bring him back. It stinks. The wages of sin is death. And and, in our culture particularly, we seem to try to whitewash the pain of death. Abraham knew he was living for a greater city, and yet he still mourned the loss of his wife. I remember going to a a funeral of one of my relatives, and um, after the funeral, you know, uh, and this is a non-Christian affair, uh, Jimmy Buffett was playing in the background. Cheeseburger in paradise. It's okay to laugh. I don't know. You laugh, you cry. I'm not sure what to do with that. Uh, And I went outside and I started weeping. I was like, my family doesn't know. They don't know what to do with death. So they say he's partying in paradise somewhere. Well, where did they get that from? What is that? Are we so easily forget death? Church, or parents rather, uh, uh, Let me encourage you to, when there's a funeral at Christ Covenant Church, bring your children to the funeral. It's better to go to the house of mourning to the house of feasting. It sobers us in what is reality. Brothers and sisters, if you've had someone that you love deeply die, thank you for letting this church grieve alongside you. In your grief, you've reminded us that this is not our home. So thank you for doing that, John, Luther family, Julie, so many, Joel, so many here have lost. And and parents, let your kids get to know these older saints so that they know that that this is not the end all. We have a home waiting for us. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for showing us your grief, you've served the church well in doing that so that we're not hoodwinked into thinking this life is all there is and living our best life now is some Christian reality. It's not. Death really does sting. And that's why Paul taunts death in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what he does. He's, he's taunting death. Where's your sting death? Because compared to the resurrection, it's nothing. It's something but it doesn't linger. The resurrection makes the sting look small, but it still stings. Abraham wept for his wife. He mourned the death of his bride. We even see in chapter 24 that Isaac does that as well. Death is a hardship in this life. Just like the song that we introduced this morning, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say forever. We will feast and weep no more. It's all future-oriented, brothers and sisters. It's not our present reality, but it is reality. And we get to 
join hands with one another as we march on toward that day. Praise God that we have brothers and sisters to do that with. Our second point, God is our only hope of getting home. So we're not there yet. No one really has to prove that. We kind of, we, we sense that, we see that. They're not there yet. But secondly, God is our only hope of getting home. Verses three to 16. The tension in the narrative becomes clear. Look at verses three to four. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. While God has promised him that he and his descendants will be the owners and permanent dwellers of this land, Abraham, the reader, we still don't know how God's going to do that. So Abraham's basically a squatter in the land that will be his. He has no rights, though, to bury his wife. He now needs to ask permission to bury her because he's a foreigner. He's an alien on this land. And then verses 3 to 16, you have this kind of back and forth negotiation. It's not a sort of negotiation one might expect, though. Abraham is offered a free piece of land in the promised land, and he never takes it freely. So look at verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, said, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you this, his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham comes back and says, no, 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 no. Then verse 11, no, 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 my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham says, no, no, no. I'm gonna pay for this thing fair and square. Verse 15, they come back again. My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Each time Abraham's response is like this. Thank you, but no thank you. I'll purchase the land. I'm not even gonna take it for a discounted price. I will pay it in full. I have 400 standard shekels of silver. And so in verse 16, Abraham weighed out for Ephron, one of the leaders of the Hittites, the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver. And he said, here, here's the, here's the money for the land. So one thing is clear about this long back and forth negotiation about this land. Abraham did not receive a freebie. He did not get this land for free. And God's infinite wisdom, he wants us to know that. It feels a bit strange, I think. But I think here's the main point. You keep seeing this recurring thing that there are a bunch of witnesses around, right? A lot of people were, were watching this negotiation, which is kind of odd, right? Like you would think if you're negotiating a, a land, like you wouldn't have a ton of witnesses, but that's just mentioned, you know, kind of as a side note in the narrative. Before these witnesses, Abraham didn't want to be seen as manipulating the situation. Maybe he didn't want to be seen using his grief or he didn't want to be, see, uh, be seen threatening them or, or anything of that sort. He, he wanted just a normal real estate transaction. I have money, you have land. I'll buy it from you if you sell it to me. That's what he wanted. Now, I'm not sure of the actual tone of this interaction. We don't have it recorded for us you know, audibly. But it's significant that he did this in the presence of many witnesses. 
so that it is, if it is ever disputed, many can testify that this was actually Abraham's actual land. John Calvin, the French reformer, said, commenting on this verse, Abraham bought the field in order that he might not possess a foot of land by the gift of any man. In other words, only God can grant the promised land. Not Ephron, not the Hittites. This is God's doing. See, Abraham knew the significance of this land. Hebrews 11 clarifies for us, it was already in the text, but it makes it even more clear. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that housed foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham knew that this land was but a foretaste of a greater land where his wife wouldn't die, where death would be no more, where they'd go, in a sense, back to the Garden of Eden, but even better than the Garden of Eden. Hebrews 11 makes that clear. And so God is our only hope of getting there. Jesus himself says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus is preparing a place for his people. He's doing it. There's no other way to get to the land, guys. Jesus must do it. He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the one that is possessing the land. He is the one that is able to offer the inheritance to others. So you see a lot of similarities here. Jesus left heaven. Abraham left Ur. Jesus sojourned in this world. Abraham sojourned on the land. Except Jesus did all this to gain a people to himself. Thirdly, third and last point, we will surely get home. We are certainly without a doubt going to get home. So look at verses 17 to 20. Sarah dies, transaction, it's Abraham's land, verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over. It was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. There's that witness again. Before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechvala, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for bearing place by the Hittites. Verse 20 is making it clear. This is now Abraham's land. It's his fair and square. He has a piece of the promised land, 
a piece of Canaan purchased by him and given out by the occasion of his wife's death. Her death brought about the inheritance of the promised land. You see, God uses what is a curse to bring about a blessing. God takes what we dread, the death of Sarah, and uses it to bless his people, to show that he's faithful to his promises. Friends, Abraham's trust in God is only a foretaste to how Jesus would trust God to gain his inheritance, which is the inheritance of the nations. So notice this, notice this, as we do a little bit of biblical theology here, the inheritance of Jesus is his people. That's why he came. He comes to get people. So Micah 7 says this, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead in the day, as in the days of old. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Isaiah 19 says that the Lord of hosts uh, 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 blesses Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. And he says, and Israel, my inheritance. The inheritance of, uh, of God is his people. God's got land. He's got the, the triune God dwells in perfect love and harmony. Ezekiel 47, you shall allot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native born children of Israel with you. They shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So as the Bible unfolds, it's not just the ethnic people of Israel, like Brandon prayed earlier, but it's now the nations. The inheritance belongs to the families of the earth. And so brothers and sisters, in this land, we get to dwell. This is our inheritance. Jesus inherits us. We inherit the land. And then four, as a close here, of implications for us as land owners, as an inheritance waiting for us. Future landowners, that is. First implication is that we will be secure. When we get home, as we certainly will, we will be secure. In the news this past week, it turns out that someone who leaked information, uh, classified information from the United States, was at the ripe, young, wise age of 21. A 21-year-old stole some documents from the most powerful and secretive place on earth, and then he shared them on the world, with the world on a gaming website. He got access to them and then he posted them. That's not very reassuring for me. I don't feel completely secure when I hear news like that. Oh, friends, America is not the promised land if a 21-year-old can do that, let alone James Bond or, or Tom Cruise, whoever. Like, th that shouldn't happen anywhere, but it does. And it shows us that this is not our home. And so, so friends, here on this earth, when we have a home, we lock our doors, you know, and most of us, not just with a button lock, we have some deadbolts, we have a chain. A lot of us get security systems. And even then, we don't dwell secure. We don't, it's not relaxing as it should be. 
this past week, uh, I got up at 3 a.m., went downstairs, roamed around, heard a noise at the fridge. And I was like, why is our fridge making noise? I started walking over there and I was like, oh no, is it a mouse? And then I started hoping that my fridge was broken, <laughs> that we needed a new one instead of finding a mouse, which is completely irrational because the cost benefit analysis doesn't weigh up. So I peeked behind and sure enough, I made eye contact with a mouse eating a piece of bread that my kids kindly just let drop behind the fridge and, and didn't. We, we have the toaster beside the fridge, which maybe that's our fault. Um, anyways, there. <laughs> and I go back and I'm like, I don't want to deal with this because if, if I try to get it, 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 it's just, there's too many wires in there. I can't think I can whack it big to do it a death blow. So I'm dealing this for like an hour and I'm just like looking at YouTube and I, I, I make up this contraption. I was like, oh, I got it. There will be, it will not be gruesome. I'll get a bucket, put some peanut butter in it, I'll climb up a ramp, and then it'll get stuck there. Well, that thing, that bucket was there for like four days, and that did not work. <laughs> and I just thought, as I'm thinking about this text, like, this little guy is causing me duress in my own house. If mice are in heaven, we'll like them. We'll be like Cinderella. It'll be a good thing. But in this world, I don't want a mouse in my house. It feels invasive. This is my property, my house. You have no right here. <sighs> but in heaven, friends, we will dwell securely. And we can do that because we have an abundant consolation that in death, because of, the rex- because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we have every confidence that we will dwell secure with him one day in our new home. I, I love this. I preach it at every funeral I do. A preacher in the 1700s named John Ryland He's preaching at the interment, the graveside service of his friend, Andrew Giffen. And this is how he kind of taunts death. He taunts, he just talks authoritatively to death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, farewell, thou dear old man. Talking about his friend. We leave thee in possession of death till the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors, At the mouth of this dungeon, thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment, thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare, prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall be all nothing but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Christian, that's the confidence that we have in the face of death. And if you've lost a loved one, be encouraged. If they have died in Christ, speak to death like that. Second implication is rest. We will have rest. There will be no sin in our new home. How many times a week did you pray in a moment of temptation? Did you, how many times was your soul waging war within itself? See, we are transgressors. We have transgressed against the Lord. And we wrestle with sin, even as Christians. But in our new home, there's no prayers like that. You see, when we're home, we get to fully rest from our warfare. There's no fiery darts from the evil one. 
He's not prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy. In fact, the God of peace has crushed the serpent's head fully and completely. His power, his influence is taken away. When we're home, we rest because our hearts are attuned with the harmony of the triune God. We rest. It will be wonderful and delightful. If you notice here, uh, just a sub point, like in the new land, there's some descriptions of there's a field, there are trees. It's going, you know, God's reminding us, so we're going to go back to the garden in this, in Abraham's land in Canaan, in Israel. But it's all a foretaste of, 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 a, of a better land. Thirdly, joyful. We will have joy. Joy inexpressible. We die to ourselves as it's appropriately called, sorry, we'll have complete and we'll have complete joy in the world to come. And what feels like a long wait here will all be overcome with tidal wave of joy unfathomable. It will be wonderful to dwell securely, to be at rest and to experiencing joy everlasting. We'll be like when we sing together as saints here, that joy that kind of wells up in your heart. Sometimes don't you wish it would stay, but then you think about something else or you, you see someone that reminds you of something or maybe your phone vibrates in your pocket and then it's just like, that won't happen. There should be joy increasing, increasing. Because our God is eternal and he will inter- eternally bless us. Some of you, when you hear the word home, joy doesn't probably enter that picture. For a lot of you, it does. You have fond memories of of your home now or maybe your home growing up. Uh, Brother and sister, if if I use the word home and you're like, that actually doesn't sound very joyful. Let me encourage you. Like, that's only in this life. Some of you have experienced unspeakable abuses in your home. Some of you do not feel secure. You've never felt protected in home. You don't feel nurtured and you have not experienced the enjoyment of being at home. Rest assured, brother and sister, Jesus will be in this home. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more mourning, no more grieving, and no more death. He will be real in your presence just like getting a consoling hug from a friend or family member, Jesus will be there. We will dwell with him. And he will even serve us, Revelation tells us. Heaven will be joyful. Fourthly, I think the main thrust of this last part of Genesis 23 is that it is certain. It's going to happen. It's as good as done. It's already there. So Ephesians 1 says, in him, in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. <laughs> We've obtained it. It's, it's, an, it's ours. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God's will cannot be altered. We cannot r- remove his will. He, he, he will not be duped by anyone. And so we've obtained an inheritance. Ephesians 1.14. Then says that we have given, been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, home is just waiting for us. We just haven't gotten there yet. 
It's ours. And it's been obtained by the death of Jesus. And so our inheritance is gifted to us. So what does Jesus get in all this? <laughs> us. What do we get? Him. All for the praise of his glory. Praise Jesus. In conclusion, I wanted to read something by an author named Douglas McKelvey in his book, Every Moment Holy, Death, Grief, and Hope. He says this, dear Christian, take hope. The powers of darkness sought to, speaking to Jesus, sought to swallow you in death's black waters, O Christ. But going under that flood, you drank death down like a river. You drank death's reservoir dry. All praise to you, Lord Christ. You swallowed death for us. And by that act of willing sacrifice, you pushed death back upon itself. Like the last lapping wave at the turning of the tide, that high water mark now fading. As death's dominion ebbs out for all time, its power to terrorize God's people forever destroyed by God's own passage through it. We are in Christ. His home is our home. We just haven't quite gotten there yet. Just as we sang earlier, we will feast in the house of Zion. We are the people who will dwell in Zion in the new Jerusalem and weep no more. So is God faithful to come through on what he's promised? Yes. Can he be trusted? Yes. How do we know? Because Jesus conquered death and he's given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. And God cannot lie. Let's pause for a moment and then I'll close this in prayer.